This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome back to the first country breakfast for the year. My name's Clint Jasper. This morning on the show, we're checking in on those massive crops that were harvested in WA and South Australia over the summer and a sweet victory scored by Australian honey exporters against their New Zealand rivals. We've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. It's a long-running war that both myself and Serena Locke have been reporting on for a long time. Good morning, Serena. Hi there, Clint. Let's kick off the year with some good rural news. Scientists are close to releasing a vaccine to stop a disease spreading through pigs to people. Yeah, so this zoonotic disease is Japanese encephalitis, which in the wet years has spread further south than ever before. And one of the multipliers is pigs. Thousands of piglets have died in the past year. Now, it's carried by mosquitoes to people close by, and there is a vaccine for humans, but very soon there could be a vaccine to protect pigs from JEV, as it's called. Now, the vaccine's been developed by La Trobe University researchers over about six months, and one approved by the regulators, it will then be manufactured at APM Animal Health's ACE Laboratories. And APM's Managing Director is Dr Chris Richards. Yeah, we'd hope it to be under six months. So, you know, we have the, the vaccine uh, all ready to be manufactured in, in Bendigo at our ACE Laboratories there. And so it's really uh, just waiting on uh, the regulator to be able to give us the permit so that we can start supplying it to farmers. And Clint, they hope to deliver around 400,000 doses of the pig vaccine. And pig farmer near Echuca in Victoria, Tim Kingma, says JEV disease has killed thousands of piglets and on his own farm amounting to about a 15% loss. So we would have litters that just uh, wouldn't bear any live piglets or sometimes very weak piglets. So that just put massive holes in our business. You can't plan for it. You feed the animals, you care for the animals, and then all of a sudden there's no piglets. So for our farm, we saw around a 15% loss of those that were affected by Japanese encephalitis. Our farm was impacted at a lower end. I know of some farms that would lose a whole week's production. It's a nasty disease and it was pretty scary when it was spreading around. So that's some very good news to start off with about the vaccine's imminent production. Moving on, homeowners are not the only ones nervously watching the Reserve Bank's announcement on interest rates. Farmers are too. Yes, and as interest rates go up, Australia's primary producers are finding it increasingly difficult to borrow money. Kate Hand is a dairy farmer on the New South Wales mid-north coast and she wants to build a new dairy to expand the business that's been in the family for three generations. So the average farm loan in Australia is around $600,000, but the hands want to borrow more than that. And while the milk prices are good, input costs, like as we know, power, fertiliser and labour are high. We can't keep milking in this 40-year-old dairy with a nine-a-side swingover. It's taking us nearly three hours at the moment with our current herd. There's no room for growth and expansion. And our cows are spending too long waiting in the milking yard. It's not fair on them. So I think early February is the next Reserve Bank announcement, isn't it? Yes, and many people will be on the edges of their seat watching as the interest rates are potentially set to be hiked again. 
High fertiliser prices are expected to stay high in 2023, especially after the bumper harvest in Western Australia. Yes, and I know you'll be talking about this a bit more, but the grain harvest has been massive Mm -hmm. in Western Australia. Back-to-back good years, this year surpassing 25 million tonnes harvested. Now, a fertiliser supplier, Ben Sudlow at CSBP in Perth, says farmers will need to budget carefully, make good economic decisions to secure what they need for this year's plantings. Now, fertiliser prices have dropped overseas, but because the crop was so large here... So equivalent to four years harvest in two years, it's said, soils will need to be replenished. You've taken off 50 million tonnes of grain over two years. The nutrient removal levels um, that come off sort of 50 million tonne of grain is um, is colossal. So the expectation is that that's got to be replaced at some point in time. And the demand for fertiliser on the back of that, notwithstanding it's got to be a cost equation for the growers against their yield, is expected to be very high. To climate change action now and a new company that aims to reduce cows' burps has won funding by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yes, this is a Perth-based startup company dedicated to reducing cows' methane emissions. It's won the backing of Bill Gates. Now, the billionaire's breakthrough energy venture is investing in Ruminate, which is a company working on a pharmaceutical product that it claims drastically reduces methane emissions from livestock. David Messina is the CEO of Ruminate, and he says the company now has about $25 million with which to start to fast-track the manufacturing process. The way that that Breakthrough Energy look at this investment and, and our other shareholders as well is... This is the first step on a, on a journey that they'll be with us right through and continue to support the group. So at the end of that journey, um, the numbers start getting uh, much more material and they obviously continue to help us uh, and guide us through that process. Sticking with a similar beat, methane emissions from livestock, a large feedlot will start using seaweed to feed the cattle. Yes, so CH4 is an asparagopsis production company, a seaweed production company, which will start supplying the seaweed to Ravensworth feedlot in southern New South Wales. Ravensworth have about 40,000 head of cattle and CH4 have production facilities in South Australia and also offices in the US and New Zealand and Australia. Now, CH4 General Manager Adam Main says it's producing seaweed offshore and in aquaculture tanks. The seaweed is dried and then produced into feed supplements. A cow, a normal cow, in any given day would eat somewhere between 12 and 14 kilos of feed. Uh, All we need to add to that uh, mix is 50 grams. 50 grams of seaweed to a 14 kilo uh, feed for a cow a day is enough to turn the methane off uh, to a a level around 90% reduction in methane. So amazing science happening there as the whole red meat industry aims to become carbon neutral by 2030. Let's move on to something that's often a red meat substitute for people who don't (laughs) eat it, mushrooms. Australia's mushroom industry is mushrooming and the industry is keen to keep its spotless record of food safety. Yes, there are smaller urban growers uh, that are booming up, I suppose. Safety practices are becoming a concern, Clint. And to address it, growers have teamed up with researchers to create a specially designed food safety program tailored to the more urban growers. Now, mushrooms are grown on pretty much like bunk beds in a cool room. And food safety researcher Dr Jenny Ekman says this safety program is a much simpler version of fresh care. 
And then we basically took out all the requirements that were not relevant to mushroom growers. So, for example, programs such as that have, have consideration of whether there have been livestock in the growing area. Now, there's not many pigs or cows coming into mushroom growing rooms, so that's really not relevant. So once you take out a lot of those requirements and you really drill down to the most important things, then we could come up with a very simplified standard that growers could use. It's really important, isn't it, that food safety, that spotless record? Because do you remember just before Christmas, the spinach industry was hit mm -hmm. with that weed contaminating people and people were getting hallucinations and blurry vision and falling over. And it was one farm identified, but the whole spinach industry was hit. So, you know, the whole mushroom industry is hoping that that spotless record can be maintained. So, yeah, there's a purpose to it. And I've seen some of the places mushrooms can grow in friend share houses, so it's probably important to have a safety plan in place. That's right. <laughs> Wool is a very sustainable product, Serena, and it's now getting into the footwear market. Yeah, so sneakers can be made of wool. It's been done before, but the wool industry has teamed up with a French company to manufacture running shoes that are biodegradable, made from 100% recyclable materials. Now, John Roberts is CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, and he says Gen Z want to buy sustainable footwear. In terms of what it means for wool growers is I think, you know, in the past, there have, as I say, there have been shoes with wool uppers this is a, an entirely biodegradable shoe with a, with a very very you know significant wool component in it serena i guess that picks up on a similar thing you and i have both reported on it over the last six or so years with the big push to get wool into things like active wear and uh, mountaineering gear and outdoor wear yeah and it's such a breathable product and we know where it's grown in australia i mean the issue of mulesing and how to deal with um fly strike has reduced as an issue over the last few years so it is being seen as a much more sustainable product they just need to get it certified in the eu so that's their next big hurdle is get the eu to recognize wool is a sustainable product better than even some synthetics and there's a contentious issue we can discuss later it's better than the plastics in my opinion yeah absolutely hey serena thank you so much for that wrap of rural news this week yeah welcome back to 2023 <laughs> welcome back abcrn often informative i'm walking inside one of the tallest flowering plants in the world. Always entertaining. Mr. Fidler or Batgirl, as I'm going to refer to you for the rest of the day. <laughs> At what point did you realise you had a 17th century murder mystery on your hands? Anger can point you towards the truth, but it can also distort your senses. Knowing what you know now, what words of wisdom would you have for young Hannah? Stay informed and be entertained. ABCRN. This week, from farming to rocking out, we'll meet a pair of Western Australian grain farmers who, after wrapping up the harvest, are hitting the road for a national tour with their indie rock band. We'll hear from a chef who's bounced back from bushfire with a new business venture, making handcrafted pasta flavoured with locally grown ingredients. And we'll step inside some country butcher shops where the owners are bucking a trend of declining numbers of butcher shops in the face of supermarket competition. The key to their success is supplying paddock-to-plate meat, giving their customers full transparency of their local supply chains. 
we've got the complete supply chain from raising them as a calf right through to the, the day you give it to the customer to put it on their table to eat. The only thing we're not doing is cooking it for them. The product is fresh, you know, one week it's in the paddock and the next week it's on your plate. It's not been three months in a truck or in the process. We'll hear how that business model is proving a winner for butchers and their customers in regional towns in North Queensland. That's coming up. First today to a survival story that serves as a sobering reminder of the dangers of working with animals and livestock. A breeder of Brahmin cattle has recounted his experience of being knocked to the ground by a young bull and then trampled by panicked cattle. Stuart Volmerhausen spoke with our reporter Jennifer Nichols from his home in southeast Queensland. and still on crutches after being knocked to the ground, then trampled by seven young bulls. Stuart Volmerhauser remains adamant that people shouldn't blame the Brahmin breed for what was just bad luck. Don't blame the breed. Yeah, it happens in every breed. You always get a little bit of crap. And probably people don't talk about it much. I was unlucky. <laughs> the co-owner of Rockstar Brahmin Stud at Thebine, north of Gympie in Queensland, prides himself on breeding quality cattle with excellent temperament. So being airlifted to hospital with a broken rib, a nasty hoof cut to the head and a badly bruised knee was a shock that he and his wife Linda are still recovering from. I can remember just looking up and I could see dirt and blood dripping down all over my eyes, so I knew I wasn't in a good place. The last few months had already been challenging for the popular and experienced cattle breeder who underwent surgery for prostate cancer in December. The 59-year-old's accident occurred just eight days later on the 2nd of January, the very day he returned to work. He was drafting young bulls in the yard when a feisty 350-kilogram wiener bull unexpectedly charged him from behind, knocking him down and spooking six other animals who panicked and ran over him. He was destined to be cold. He was always nervous as a calf and didn't settle down, so that's why he was being drafted off to be left behind, but he didn't appreciate it. Mm, But it does happen. Some genetics... An odd one will turn up, and in any breed, yeah, and we, you know, like I said, we pride ourselves in temperament and quality of our Brahmins. So it's yeah, we it, we just eradicate it straight away and discontinue breeding that line of cattle and go something different. Yeah. Stuart's wife Linda raced to the cattle yards, fearing the worst, after receiving the news that her husband had been seriously injured. Oh, he wasn't good. He wasn't good yet. Yeah, blood everywhere and his knee was like a football and he wasn't in a good way. How worried were you at the time? Oh, yeah, very. When I did get to the hospital, I saw the pain he was in and I all but went over, fainted. (laughs) Luckily, there was a doctor there. (laughs) I was lucky. A lot of my injuries weren't what they thought they might have been. I had some... Two days they thought I might have had a bit of spinal injury down the bottom, but it's yeah, it's just nothing. That's the only problem is the knee, and it's just because it's been trod on. That's it. It's it. You know, the feet do damage to you. That's what makes you bleed inside. Yeah. An outpouring of community support has lifted the family's spirits at an extremely stressful time. The phone didn't stop with offers to help. Anything we needed done, people around here and everyone we know. They're just amazing. They are amazing. One lady in particular, she turned up here with 
16 pre-cooked meals for us so we didn't have to worry. Just beautiful people, beautiful people. Another sobering reminder of the dangers that come with working around animals, the couple's vet, Dr Damien Smith, wrote on Mary River Veterinary Services' Facebook page. Stuart has always been super cautious when it comes to safety around bulls, but when it comes to animals, accidents can happen, even with the most experienced. If you handle cattle every day, and we do it every day, seven days a week, Eventually something will trick you up and I, I did not expect it. I don't think there's anything I could do differently. We don't stir our cattle up. I've got Linda and my daughter and, and my mum's always around the yard, so we don't have any cattle that are, are shitty. Encouraged by friends, the couple began breeding stud Brahmins in 2018 with a focus on quality rather than quantity. We've got a good friend, Roy Sommerfeld, and, and the rest of my bra rock. Brahmins, we've been mates for years, and like he started us, he said, you need a couple of these grey Brahmins, because we were raring some, yeah, and he tricks you into a world that you can't get out of. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like about grey Brahmins? Oh, I don't know. If someone will pay a bit of money for what you bred, that's a good thing. I'm happy to see it go somewhere, and hopefully it does a job for them, and they can do good, and they'll say, well, we bought that from Rockstar years ago, so that's what we hope, yeah. Their hard work has been rewarded, with one customer paying $43,000 for a nine-month-old heifer last year. But that's a far cry you were telling me when you bought oh. this property we're sitting on today, that you went through drought and you were selling animals for a pittance. Yeah, $270 for wiener calves, and they had tough times, and, you know, it can rock back that way too sometimes, but take advantage when it's good. That's where the stud world and, and doing what we're doing, we sort of hope we can keep our value up in our cattle. Man. And we love what we do. Actually, if I didn't need the money, I'd be happy just to breed them and look at them. Because if you get a great grey Brahmin hefferable, it, it is something special, yeah. When grain harvest wraps up in Western Australia's great southern region, David House and Henry Carrington-Jones trade driving the header for taking to the stage. I'm Henry Carrington-Jones and I play on the drums. I am David House and I play on the guitar and sing a little bit. These two farmers turned rockers make up the two-man indie band, Old Mervs, and fresh from finishing harvesting crops on their respective family properties near Kojanup, they've hit the road for an Australian tour. We've um, had a few solid nights now and, yeah, feeling pretty good. They've been fun. Feeling tired but feeling good. Hello, I'm Sophie Johnson and I'm chatting to the musical duo who are finding a balance between work life on the farm to playing live gigs. They say they wouldn't have it any other way. Paddock to performance. We kind of literally went from a paddock, like we were both in Kojanup doing a harvest in about 2016 and then we went back to Henry's donger and just sort of set up some gear and started jamming and then now we're still still doing it. Yeah, it was, it was an odd one, like I played in bands through school and stuff with mates, like similar sort of music and Dave was interested in music as well and we'd sort of, every now and then at school we'd mucked around together, like playing and then um, we kind of just had, yeah, rained out and harvest one day and we're like, oh, let's set, like, the old drum set up that was at home up and in the music room and we just started, like, drinking beer, basically, and playing and, like, mucking around and then it sort of, like, was fun, so we just kept doing it. So how much would you say your farming upbringing has influenced to where you are now? I don't know how, how it's sort of influenced music. It's a good question. I'd say it'd be, like... Probably just so I didn't have to farm would be the inspiration. Oh, <laughs> I'm geez, joking. That's harsh. 
I just tell uh, dad that to annoy him. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say character wise, like big time. It's yeah. um like the music industry is a very different one to farming. It's probably the other end of the spectrum on a lot of sort of elements, and it's probably good to like come in with a country background, a sort of country aspect, I guess, because you're a bit more practical about things, and yeah, you sort of there get the job done, and nothing's a problem. Uh, sort of attitude, and yeah, try, try and be good people, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's that's probably what's influenced us the most. It's just the character side of things um, compared to the music sort of people. Yeah. How do you manage or balance music and helping your family out on the farm? It's not as busy. Well, it's sort of getting busy now. Previously, it hasn't been too busy. Like we've had so much time in between touring, and like we've really only just started getting into it. So we were just always pretty much just working, and then. We'd go out to Perth on the weekends and gig or go up and practice or write. So now it will be probably a bit hard. I think a bit less time on the fun these days. But, yeah, it was pretty easy at the start. Yeah, having folks that, like, were, like, happy about what we're doing so they would be keen for us to go and do it and take some work off or whatever, yeah, so that helped big time at the start. That's probably why we were able to do it, really. Yeah, having time to sort of get into it while we did have a job so sort of thing was definitely hugely important is this something you guys see yourself doing for a while doing music but also still balancing a bit of farm life definitely we had a chat the other day and we're like every summer it'd be nice to sort of at least get two weeks off or like three just to go and do harvest because it's just it's just enjoyable like going back to the farm and sort of getting back to that sort of working life is just it's pretty important when you're touring and you're just sort of always at a pub and always doing that sort of carry on. Going back and doing a bit of work is is really helpful for the brain. Good, good, yeah, good balance, just doing static tasks. Like when you're touring, it's just so much stimulation. You're always on the road, like new hotels, like new planes, you're excited about getting on a plane. And um, then, yeah, before you know it, you're at Soundcheck at the pub at 2pm 2, 2 and they're offering you beers and you're... Yeah, then it's 12am and then you're hopping into bed and you wake up and it's the same sort of thing again. So coming back to the farm is like, I think it's a real good thing to just go back and chill out and do what what I guess most people do, which is a job that sort of is the same thing most days and whatnot. So yeah, it's, um, it's probably an important thing to keep up, I reckon. And how was Harvest for both of you guys this year? It was good. We got it done. Got it done quicker than usual, actually, which is nice. Usually we go, like, halfway into January, but I think they got it done sort of in the first week, which is which is a bonus for us. And you yeah. guys had a, you had an interesting finish. Oh, we had an absolute shocker of a harvest, to be honest. We, um, we've got a very old header. Dad's a bit too scared to upgrade on the header front sort of side of things, so we were running an old older girl and or two, actually. One was an old, old one, and they both broke down by the end, so we actually had contractors come in to take the uh, pain off in the last three or four days which was um good so it was interesting but it went well yield wise and that so well enough we're happy so yeah it was good good to get it done and to go from that sort of situation to on stage with people singing the words to your songs was that a bit of a good way to finish harvest yeah it's a good way to start the year for sure like finish harvest and then you sort of get out of that but you say you like going back and working and then when you've got a tour coming up, it's pretty exciting, so it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, really. Would you rather be singing or shearing sheep? Singing fuck. <laughs> if I could shear sheep, I would like... I'd definitely rather be, be a shearer. Good. I actually wouldn't mind, like... A bit, bit of coin in it. Being able to get, yeah. And I'd have, a much, I'd have a much better physique as well, which I wouldn't mind. 
yeah. look like a big big tank. Yeah. Don't know, we'd bust my back up though. Yeah. David House and Henry Carrington-Jones, who make up the indie rock band Old Mervs and also work on their family farms in WA's Great Southern Region, where they spoke with reporter Sophie Johnson. You can read more of their story of juggling farm work and touring with the band on the RN homepage. I'm Clint Jasper with you for Country Breakfast. Still to come, the butchers overseeing their whole supply chain, raising calves from the paddock to deliver to their customers' plates, and how a devastating bushfire that destroyed a a chef's native pepperberry orchard led him to a new venture, making artisan pasta. So I'm a chef at trade. I trained in Canberra way back in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, I'm not Italian by heritage. <laughs> I trained under a German chef, but I've just loved pasta my whole life. A long-time love of pasta led Tim Wimborne to create a new venture that's helped him bounce back from a devastating bushfire. He's making flavoured pasta using locally grown ingredients here in Braidwood in the New South Wales Southern Tablelands. G'day, I'm Justin Hunstale and I'm chatting to Tim about his path from chef to pasta maker. It's a journey that spans several years and includes a spell overseas and a few other careers in between. I spent 20 years as a journalist with my wife and in 2016 we came back to Australia. We already owned a farm. We wanted to do something with it and native pepper grew there naturally so we started a native pepper farm and I think it's the first commercial native pepper orchard in the state. Move forward, the bushfires of 2020 came through and our, we lost our farm and our orchard and all the infrastructure went with it. So we had to do something different and uh, we just expanded the Braidwood Food Company. We bought a building, we built a commercial kitchen, uh, started a shop and things have snowballed from there. The native pepperberry growing on Tim's farm has become a hero ingredient in a lot of the pasta he produces as his crops return after the fire. And he's seeing a big demand for his range of products. So it's expanding. We have about 30 retailers we work through in Canberra, the Southern Highlands and the South Coast. And we don't really even go out to, uh, to promote it that much. It's mostly uh, just growing organically. It's word of mouth. It's, it's people coming to us a lot of the time and we're just expanding that way. Now we're inside the shop at the moment, you've just been mixing some pasta over there. It's drying on the racks uh, that we can see behind you now. What, what's the, the process, I suppose, behind creating these interesting shapes and, and drying it in the way that you do? We try to do something a little bit different to what a lot of other people do. So we're using really old fashioned you know, artisanal techniques from Italy. So all our equipment is Italian. We're not necessarily trying to make a product that people would say, oh, it tastes just like I've had in Italy, it's just like Italian pasta because what we're doing is we're trying to put our own local stamp on it. We're not using Italian ingredients, we're using Australian ingredients. Our semolina and our pasta is all from Tamworth, from a single grower up there. And any flavouring ingredients we put in our pasta come from around the Braidwood area here. So it really is a, a, local, a local taste that we're after. And what does that process do for the taste of the pasta as compared to something you might buy from the supermarket? Because we're using traditional techniques, it's quite a slow process com compared to you know, industrially produced pasta. It takes a lot longer to mix it. We're extruding through brass dyes, which is much, a much better quality pasta, holds a sauce much better. But the trade-off is it takes much longer to make then we dry it for up to 80 hours on these racks at low temperature. Much better quality pasta again, and much better nutrient value. 
it just takes time. Talking to Tim Wimborne, Braidwood pasta maker, and some of the interesting flavours that you've got here, Tim, all from around this area. Talk to me about the sort of flavours that you incorporate into your pasta and, and how you do that. So the original flavoured pasta we made was with native Australian pepper. So it's pepperberry, it's a bush food, and it grew naturally on the farm that we have. So we, that's why we started that side of that, that part of the business. From then we use a lot of garlic as well, because Braidwood's really known as a bit of a garlic area now. I think there's about two dozen garlic growers doing organic local garlic. Uh, we use uh, roasted garlic and rocket, we do, and now we're doing a, a, a non-wheat version using, using a sprouted red lentil flour, which has a different taste again. Obviously when you go to this effort of making pasta, you want pasta to be the hero of the dish. What's the best way to eat your pasta? Keep it simple. So I, I always feel that if you use really good olive oil at one end and good cheese at the other to book in whatever you're making, keep it really simple. If you go to Italy and you go to all these different regions that have their own specialty, they really have more than four or five ingredients. It's really, you know, it's peasant food there. That's how it's developed. So they've just you know, made their sauce out of whatever grew locally where it is available. So we try and do something a little bit similar and keep it really simple. You might just use four or five ingredients yourself, including olive oil. The simpler the better. You mentioned uh, that you got into pasta because of the bushfire that devastated your pepper orchard. How's it been since then in terms of that farm perspective? Have you replanted? It took us a little while to get back on the horse because it really was devastating. We lost not only our orchard but all the infrastructure that went with it. We lost the fences and the irrigation and everything. But we have decided to redevelop the orchard. Now it's not producing yet because it takes you know, four or five years to get the plants uh, up to a point where they'll, they'll grow berries. So we've done a couple of things differently. One is um, we're managing the vegetation around our farm a bit differently. We've planted just recently the first part of a, a fire insulator of, of non-flammable species around the orchard, which we hadn't done in the past. Um, another thing we're doing is, is we're working with a, a few other local landholders who want to grow pepper on their farms, and we're helping them set up small pepper orchards. They don't want all the hassle of marketing and packaging and so on, so they will sell their wholesale crop to us. They have a guaranteed wholesale outlet. For us, it diversifies where we get our pepper from in the region, so using the same kind of local pepper. But for us, it makes us a little bit more climate change resilient because if another fire came through or some other disaster came through, there's more of a chance that some of that pepper won't be affected because it's growing in different areas around our region. As long as he can remember, Stuart Christensen has loved butchers. Whenever we went somewhere, I'd stare through a butcher shop window. And so one day, decided to buy a butcher shop. That, that's how it got started. After moving to the outback Queensland town of Hewarden, four hours inland from Townsville, Mr Christensen has opened Flinders Butcher in the small town, home to 1,100 people. He says providing a quality product is of the utmost importance to him. It's always the best idea to have the best product you can have. I, my, my terms, if you, if you wouldn't eat it yourself, you wouldn't serve it to a customer. So that's my philosophy with the meat industry. Uh, the, the pork, well, we don't slaughter the pork locally. It, it comes from the south, uh, from big meats of Biggerton. Um, and the, the lamb predominantly is local lamb um, from a number of little small suppliers and a, a small grain assist feedlot. Yeah, the emphasis is mainly on quality. But the local, local is good, but yeah, at the end of the day you need quality product. It's very important to be able to supply your local customers. Uh, and we do a lot of, in the tourist season we get extremely busy. Um, the, the numbers swell by the hundreds every week. Uh, and they, they appreciate the effort 
Um, and yeah, they, some of them say they just come here to go to the butcher shop to buy something. That, that's how you look. So this makes us feel good. And, yeah. G'day, I'm Lucy Cooper and I'm visiting Stuart Christensen's butcher shop here in Hewarden, which is attracting customers from further afield. Mr Christensen has a local property and slaughterhouse which has created a full paddock-to-plate experience for his customers and it's a business model that is paying off. Since we've bought the butcher shop, um, we've had an estimate we've gone up 500% in sales. Um, yeah, virtually sky's the limit, but yeah, staff, so staff, staffing is the issue to have enough staff to be able to do anything. Further along the Flinders Highway in the township of Richmond, you'll meet Keegan Nelson and Lorraine Johnston, the proud owners of Moselle Meats. Lorraine says she was surprised to end up in the trade, given she used to be a banker. Mainly his idea, so his parents have been in the industry for many years, 20 plus years, so they had Avatar for us, it was more of we wanted something for ourselves, so we bought the butcher shop five years to finish their plan on on selling their own product, so that's how it all started. It was him, I'm a banker, by when I first met him, now I'm a butcher. Mr Nelson said, given demand for their product, it's hard to source everything from the small township. What we can source locally ourselves we do, so all our lamb in store, our goat, our mutton, um, a lot of our beef, so whatever we can source off quarter beef we do. We do have to buy a few ribs and rumps in, obviously, because you can't keep up with your local trade. But, yeah, everything we can possibly source, we do. Our pigs come from Charles Towers. That's the closest piggery. Um, yeah, and everything we can sort of get out of North Queensland, right down to our jams and chutneys and everything like that's from a local lady here makes them. And, yeah, it's good. We try and keep as much as we can, as local as we can, to keep the money around this area. Moselle Meats is also a closed supply chain operation which Mr Nelson says not only cuts costs, but provides transparency to consumers. We've got the complete supply chain from, from raising them as a calf right through to the, the day you give it to the customer to put it on their table to eat. The only thing we're not doing is cooking it for them. Um, but for us, it is, it's very important to be able to put our hands on the whole food chain, to be able to control the product from start to finish and to be able to guarantee to someone that it's good. Um, and it is to re-ensure too that um, the product is fresh, you know, one week it's in the paddock and the next week it's on your plate. It's not been three months in a truck or in the process. So. Given the Flinders Butcher has recently undergone a new Renault and Moselle Meats only opened in 2018, it would appear butchers across Australia are going pretty well. But according to qualified butcher and consultant Alison Meager, these guys are an exception to the rule. I see a lot closing, and I guess if you don't see them, you don't think about them anymore, do you? Like if you're <laughs> butcher shops, I'm saying, like if you don't see them, you don't really think about them. So um, I see that they're closing, they're declining. Miss Meager says providing a paddock-to-plate experience is what consumers want, and butchers need to adapt to that. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete with supermarkets. People really want to know where their cows come from, right? And you can kill your own beasts. And I think there's a lot... I, it's a much more relaxed method as well. Like, the cows are much happier. Um, there's not as much stress. So, yeah, I think that whole paddock to plate and the home kill is becoming very, very popular. It'd be awesome if people were doing more paddock to plate stuff. I think it's going to go that way anyway because people are more concerned about where this, their products come from, aren't they? So um, it's, it is definitely 
going to go that way. Mm -hmm. And we have to prepare ourselves now for that. And you'd think pulling 12-hour days every day as a butcher might make you sick of meat. Think again. I love all meat. I shouldn't, they say, but yeah. Um, I love a nice piece of rump steak. I'd, I'd eat it five days a week. Do you eat it five days a week? Pretty well, yes. Stuart Christensen, a passionate meat lover and owners of the Flinders Butcher in Hewenden in North Queensland, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. You can read more about those country butcher shops that are focusing on local products to win over customers. You'll find their story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program by checking out the RN homepage. Look for Country Breakfast under Programs. Australian Manuka honey producers have scored a significant win against their New Zealand counterparts who want exclusive use of the word Manuka. The New Zealand-based Manuka Honey Appalachian Society withdrew from appeals it launched in the United Kingdom and Europe after losing trademark cases to Australia. And the Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender says it means Australian producers are free to sell their honey in those markets now. Well, number one, it's the uh, right decision on their behalf, and they should have done it a long time ago uh, and saved themselves a lot of money and pain. But it means to our industry that, you know, the the industry from our perspective is now significantly de-risked. We were being asked by um, partners and distributors around the world, you know, what's the situation with New Zealand? And obviously we'll be now sharing this outcome with the world through all of our members and channels. Uh, So it's a very, very significant uh, outcome for us and we wish we hadn't had to go through it, but that's what happened. Can you update at all on the other matters that are happening around the world? Well, the only other one that was alive was was with Europe. They've also um, stopped uh, pursuing the trademark name in Europe. And the only outstanding one now is uh, the IPO office in New Zealand, which we're waiting for a decision on. Um, You know, and hopefully it's been a year now, so hopefully there'll be a decision coming out of there soon. And um, we hope it's the right decision. You know, obviously for us, it's a one-way trade with New Zealand. We can't sell any honey to New Zealand, uh, but they sell an awful lot of honey over here. So... We hope it's the right decision, but it's not a significant market for us. And are you hoping what's taken place in the UK and EU, they are different jurisdictions, but, you know, if the weight of your argument has carried in those uh, courts that it might uh, influence New Zealand's actions in any other future disputes it might have decided to take against Australia and other countries? Oh, they, they are independent jurisdictions, so we 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 don't know for sure if um, you know these decisions in the UK and Europe will have any bearing at all on uh, on what New Zealand uh, does. Uh, we just hope it's a rational conversation. Obviously, we've been asking for collaboration with New Zealand for many years, and that's been uh, turned down at every time. So um, perhaps these outcomes will change their thinking a little bit. Manuka's always been an extremely valuable product, both domestically and in export markets, especially around uh, southeastern and eastern Asia. Can you give us an idea of the size of this market? Yeah, Clint, it's very hard to um, put a dollar number on it, but you know the forecast for the general market for Manuka honey is about 1.2 billion by 2027. Now, when you break that down or try to break it down into things like medical products or 
prebiotics or um, creams, eczema, acne, or other throat lozenges, uh, throat sprays, things like that. It's very difficult to get a, an exact handle on the, the number. But um, certainly all of the health benefits of the honey are well known globally and a lot of value-add products are now coming to market besides just the honey in the jar. Um, and while Asia has been a big market for Manuka in the past, uh, the US is obviously picking up and Europe's been a reasonable market and the UK for the honey has been a large market for a long time. When we last spoke, Paul, just before the hearing that was going to take place before the New Zealand uh, Intellectual Property Office, you were calling on more support from the federal government. I think at the time you weren't receiving much at all. Has the government come through and supported the industry more in the intervening years? Yeah, it's, it's you know, while we've had a change in government, we've uh, re-engaged with the new government and we've had ongoing support specifically for the funding from the Attorney General's office, which has been very helpful, and obviously with uh, trade and agriculture uh, on a watching brief with us as well. So um, they have been more engaged, and um, obviously this outcome is, is, is good for Australia. The Australian Manuka Honey Association's Paul Callender. In WA, South Australia and parts of Victoria, grain growers have harvested some massive grain and oilseed crops this season. And while prices have come down off the highs they hit last year in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they're still relatively high, so those crops are worth a lot of money. So when grain receival sites started reporting new daily records of deliveries from farmers like they did in WA and South Australia, I wanted to find out more about the network that moves this huge amount of grain offshore to become things like noodles in Indonesia, beer or sochi in Japan and Vietnam, and cooking oil in the Middle East. Adam Clark runs a grain-broking business based in Melbourne. I started by asking him where he fits along the grain supply chain. My role as a, as a broker, uh, very specifically, I work in the trade-to-trade space. So uh, my clients are, are the multinational trading companies, uh, country merchants in a, in a regional centre, uh, and they're the ones that will face a farmer. Uh, and then once they might have purchased grain from a, from a grower, uh, then I will work with them to find a market or to put different opportunities in front of them and try and flesh that out. And I mainly work in uh, the export space, uh, but I do have some domestic clients as well. If we turn our minds to maybe WA and South Australia and these really massive harvests they've had over there, there's been you know record production of, of wheat, uh, the grain handler over in WA CBH and um, in South Australia as well, we're reporting daily records being broken for the amount of grain coming into their receival sites. What does that higher volume of grain do to that whole export supply chain? Uh, well, initially, uh, the higher volumes, uh, if I could you know, look, use the cliche of low-hanging fruit, accumulating the grain uh, closer to port, the accumulation pace is, is quite um, fast, and that's in WA and SA. Does it put the system under any stress at all? Look, certainly receiving um, considerable amounts of grain puts the system and people uh, 
under pressure. But this harvest, it was slow to get going. Uh, but by the time we got to around the third week of November, the rain had pretty much stopped. So once harvest got going, it really got going. We didn't have too many rain delays, broadly speaking, around the country. Uh, so the harvest, uh, once it got moving, it, it came off very well. And is that something that changes between a season with these really high volumes and one where, you know, it's a bit more closer to the average or even below the average? Does the system, you know, tend to work the same year in, year out? It does. It tends to work the same. I mean, I guess it's just higher volumes just take longer to, to to deliver to a storage facility or for growers to store on farm. And the the low-hanging fruit you mentioned was accumulating grain at port. Is there any other point past that uh, bit in the supply chain where it does start to get a bit bit more competitive or or tough? Well, this year, the accumulation... or the the harvest cycle and the delivery of grain to a boat for export has actually been excellent compared to where what we were putting up with last year. Uh, this harvest and the accumulation and delivery cycle, uh, there really haven't been any problems. It's actually quite a good news story. In WA, for instance, uh, the vessels that are uh, that are calling port to be loaded with grain, they're basically coming on straight onto the berth to be loaded. Uh, whereas last year, there were instances where we had vessels sitting at anchor for, you know, 20 plus days waiting to get their position on the berth. And does that attract uh, extra costs? When the vessel is sitting at anchor? Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, it's what's called in shipping language demurrage, uh, and that is what um, uh, the shipper gets charged uh, to basically for that boat to sit there on daily hire. And last year, freight rates were very expensive. So those demurrage bills for what I will call my clients, exporters, uh, they they were very onerous last year. At the same time that we're producing these big crops, there's been some pretty dry and even drought conditions in the other big exporting countries, South America, North America, all across Europe. Has that kind of increased the pool of grain out of Australia? Is it entering a quite hungry market? That was definitely the case last year. Whilst uh, we were, th- this Ukraine um, situation was playing out, and I agree with you that yes, Argentina is dry. You know, we have had what they will call a drought across the U.S. plains, which is where most of the milling wheats are produced in the U.S. Uh, but the, the Russia, specifically Russia, they grew a crop last year which is in excess of 100 million tonnes of wheat. So that is really weighing heavily on global prices. And meantime, Australia's produced a big crop as well, and we have a geographic um, freight advantage into you know big uh, destination markets such as Southeast Asia, North Asia and parts of the Middle East. There was a story mentioned a lot in the grains industry from 16, 17, especially, I think was the first time I started hearing about it, about those Black Sea exporters having a a growing competitive advantage into those Southeast Asian ports. With the whole situation in the Black Sea, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, in spite of that big crop that Russia's produced, is that still the case? They're not. As aggressive, well, last year they certainly weren't as aggressive because in in many situations, uh, 
you, there were ports that were getting, you know, bombed. Uh, owners of uh, vessels didn't want to send their crews and their vessels into a war zone. So Australia certainly had an advantage last year. Um, as we sit here today, uh, Russia has been quite competitive into Southeast Asian origins from a price perspective, but they are vessels are sitting at anchor. There's anything from sort of two weeks to 40 days, vessels sitting on demurrage waiting to load in the Black Sea region at the moment. Um, so it's a, a longer lead time to come out of the Black Sea into Southeast Asia. Uh, so Australia, given our performance of our lo logistics currently, uh, we are a very reputable supplier uh, and we're on a, a shorter timeline in terms of, you know, delivering grain to a destination market. And the pandemic, as you mentioned, sent ocean freight prices through the roof, really. How yes. much has that come down now and how much of it's of that is a help to us in that advantage? Yes. So broadly speaking, um, from where we were, say, this time last year to, to today, uh, bulk ocean freight rates have retraced, depending on the destination, 40 to 50%. Uh, so we're basically half what we were, half what we were last year. But what's also uh, happened is that Within the, the, the classes of types of vessels, which are basically based on size, a handy max is nominally 40 to 45,000 um, tonnes of wheat that can be shipped. A Panamax is 50 to 55. And there's, there's different asset classes within you know, shipping language. But what we've seen is an equalisation amongst those uh, different asset classes of vessels. So last year, handy maxes were very expensive versus Panamaxes. Um, but we've seen a big uh, slowdown in global trade, which is to the benefit of Australian grain and, and, and exporters and growers. Um, if we can just go back to the actual movement of grain to port on the East Coast, especially in New South Wales, not only did farmers plant a smaller crop last season, but we had a pretty uh, soggy start to the spring and the summer when harvest normally gets underway. How disruptive was that? During during the shipping season, it was very disruptive in New South Wales. Um, and really, uh, you know, I think we were forecasting, say, wheat exports of maybe 18 million tonnes for the for the, the marketing season. And we fell just, uh, we fell short of that, somewhere around 17.5. And that difference really is attributable to New South Wales. The, it was very difficult to accumulate grain um, due to the weather, uh, lines being blocked. You know, we had landslide in the Blue Mountains. Early in the shipping season, we had a derailment uh, for the rail line, the escarpment that comes into Port Kembla. So there were a lot of difficulties um, there. There were also weight restrictions on, line, uh, on the lines. You know, I was talking to one client yesterday and last year at best they could run a train set of about 40 wagons, whereas this year they're getting 48 to 50 wagons on every movement. So we're accumulating grain a lot faster this year on the East Coast and in New South Wales specifically. Is a broker's job busier when there's a lot of grain around and, and I guess it's easier to get your hands on or in a drought year when there's a bit more of a scramble for a, a smaller crop? Uh, yes. So generally speaking, um, I do tend to be busier uh, in droughts, um, finding solutions 
of where you might move something that you might call a surplus to an area that's deficit. Um, you know, going back to the drought, New South Wales and Queensland, there was a lot of grain that moved from Western Australia to the eastern seaboard. Um, in these bigger crop uh, environments where we've got an exportable surplus, which is above our, our, our ability, our supply chain ability, you know, my clients do find it easier just to keep going to the grower uh, when they need to get what they want. So generally, growers will carry grain for a bit longer. Um, this year is a little different for me in that we've got uh, quite a lot of different grades around the country. We've got a big export program that is uh, mainly uh, towards the feed wheat um, end of the of the grade spectrum. Um, when uh, surprisingly, uh, we've produced uh, a higher percentage of milling wheats. So certainly, I've been busy, um, you know, swapping some grades around between exporters and different port zones and things like that lately. Yeah, that post harvest. And just picking up on something you said then, we'd expect to see a lot more farmers storing grain um, for a, a longer this season just because of how much there is around. Yes, that, that's, that's my view. Um, if we go back to Western Australia, um, you know, the CDH are basically full across their Esperance port zone and we know that there's a lot of grain being stored on farm in silo bags. Um, there's quite a bit of grain that needs to be dried in the Esperance port zone so there's a bit of a queue for lining up for grain to be dried. Um, so, you know, certainly grain is sitting back on farm at the moment and just waiting for its turn to move into port. But in, in Western Australia, they will, you know, they will find a way pretty quickly. They'll work through it. And for those states where the record receivables have been broken, is it kind of a, a proof that the supply chain is resilient and it can hold up to these big crops? There's been reports in the past, you know, out of AGIC and the like that have said that our supply chain nationally is more expensive than our competitors and, and is ageing, but it seems to have managed to get the job done, whether it's under the pressure of the high volumes in WA and SA or the challenges posed by the difficult weather in New South Wales? Well, I can only look at it as I'd see it today. Um, and really, we've got, you know, vessels arriving essentially coast to coast. They're loading on arrival. Sure, there might be an instance of something where there's an accumulation delay uh, on a, on a one-off basis, but broadly across all of the exporting states, um, things uh, are, are going really quite well. The other thing about supply chain is that there's, it's not just the big bulk handlers uh, anymore. We've got, you know, private um, ports and providers um, have, you know, for want of a better word, popped up uh, and they're, uh, you know, providing a viable, you know, option for growers to sell into different networks that are the non-traditional large bulk handlers. So our ability to move the crop in the first half of the year, there's been considerable investment in that space. Adam Clark is a grain broker based in Melbourne. Thank you for tuning in to the first Country Brekkie of the Year. My thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Tim Simons for bringing the show together. And stick around because my fellow Saturday morning crew are standing by in paddocks bursting with news, analysis and wisdom. So keep it locked to ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.